Our text for today comes from the 11th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, um, starting with verses 1 and 2, and then going to 20, verses 29 through 32. So I ask you, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't rejected his people whom he knew in advance. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the case of Elijah when he pleads, against his, pleads with God against Israel? God's gift and calling can't be taken back. Once you were disobedient to God, but now you have mercy because they were disobedient. In the same way, they have also been disobedient because of the mercy that you received. So they can receive mercy too. God has locked up all of us. God has locked up all people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of us. This is the word of God for all the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. These last few months have been, have reminded us that we kind of live in an iconoclastic age. Iconoclasm, for those who are unfamiliar, is the belief that images are considered evil and must be destroyed. And you find this belief in iconoclasm in, in different faith traditions. Um, it is found within Christianity, it's found within Islam. There are some faiths that they do not want to see an image of someone. In the wake of the, de the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis cops, there have been people all around the country taking part in different kinds of destruction of iconoclasts. Of course, there has the one that you've probably heard the most are um, in cases throughout the American South where people have been demanding um, that Confederate um, memorials be taken down. And sometimes people decide not to wait for the city officials, they decide to take them down themselves. But the statue toppling doesn't stop there. There have been other cases where people have taken down statues of Christopher Columbus. Uh, that even happened here in Minnesota at the, the state capitol. There are many Native Americans that see Columbus not as a discoverer, as sometimes we have been told, but as a murderer who was responsible for the near eradication of indigenous peoples in the New World. There are others that wanted and are interested in taking down any statue of Thomas Jefferson because Jefferson owned slaves and he had several children through one slave in particular, Sally Hemings. George Washington's statue has been considered because of, yes, he, all, he too also owned slaves, and so did Ulysses S. Grant. But we're doing more than just removing statues. Princeton is removing the name of former President Woodrow Wilson from the name of the international school that, uh, that bears that, his name. 
they're doing that because he has had um, a history that's actually very proven of racism. Robert E. Lee's name is being taken, uh, considered for removal from the name of Washington and Lee University, which is in Virginia, um, of course, for his role in the Confederacy. His name actually was added to the university after his death um, in 1870. Um, he was the first person to lead uh, the university in the aftermath of the Civil War. When we think these days about our history of who we are as a people, when we think of race relations and relations between different ethnicities, when we think about how we are changing as a nation and becoming more diverse, we always kind of come up with all of these questions. Who deserves to be honored? Who doesn't? What sin should be taken into account and which ones should we ignore? I love history partially because it's always so fascinating, but also because it, it tells a truth that sometimes we don't always want to tell about ourselves, that we aren't always perfect. The interesting thing about American history and, and probably any other country's history is how much sin and virtue are wrapped in together. We are a nation of opposites. We are a nation that believes in equality and in freedom. We are a nation that welcomes people from every corner of the world. And yet, we are also a nation that enslaved a people. Actually, happens to be my ancestors. And nearly exterminated and other people. We are a nation that is not based on blood and soil, but on ideas like liberty and justice. And yet, we're also the nation that created Jim Crow. And we are also the nation that interned over 100,000 Americans simply because they shared the ancestry of our then enemy, Japan. And even here in Minnesota, we love to think of ourselves as leaders on the issue of civil rights. And we think of people like Hubert Humphrey, who pushed his party, the Democratic Party, and ultimately the nation to work for civil rights. And yet, Minnesota is also the place where, actually exactly a hundred years ago, three African Americans were lynched in Duluth. And I said Duluth, Minnesota, not Duluth, Georgia. Malcolm X is has said to believe, is believed to have said that the Mason-Dixon line ends at the Canadian border. Sin and virtue are mixed together into American history. But that mixture of sin and saint is also found in the human heart. The last few chapters of Romans, um, Romans 9 through 
um, 11, where we are today, Paul has, is trying to work out a question. He is working out the question of salvation of the Jews, because of course, Paul is Jewish. He grew up Jewish, he grew up knowing um, the Torah, he was someone studied in the law. He wants to see his people accept Christ. But he knows that many have rejected God. And so Paul is kind of spending these verses trying to work this question out. The interesting thing is how, where he starts. He doesn't start from a who's in and who's out viewpoint. He actually understands that we, and he meant himself, and the Romans, Jews, and Gentiles are all on the outs with God. Verse 32 says, God has locked up all the people in disobedience in order to have mercy on all of them. Everyone is disobedient, not just the Jews. Paul says earlier in Romans that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that basically means none of us would get a statue or a school named after them. We have all fallen away from God. We have all sinned. Back in chapter 1, Paul tells us in verse 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. It is the righteousness of God revealed. Now, there's something interesting about that passage that I guess it doesn't come out nearly as well in English than it does in Greek. The Methodist minister and theologian Jason Michelli says that English kind of dulls what is being said here, that what it should actually read is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the rectifying power of God is invading. God's business through the cross is an endeavor. It is an endeavor to set things right, to rectify that that has been wrong. Righteousness, when we hear it in that other um, version, it, it just sounds very passive. Rectify is like you're doing something. And yet and it occurred on the cross, but obviously it's something that's still happening. And that it is something that is not simply a re revelation, it is about an invasion. That Christ is coming into the world to take on that which enslaves creation. The thing about that is that it tells something about who we are. You know, Paul here is trying to talk about who the Jews are and also the Gentiles. And of course, it has something to say about us today, and that is that we are sinners. And in some parts of our world today, we don't like to hear that. And some of us don't even want to think that we are sinners. We want to be told that we are the good guys, that we have nothing in common with the Confederacy or Woodrow Wilson. 
that we are more educated, more aware, more woke. But the fact is, we sin. We sin again and again and again. We fail to live up to expectations. The theologian William Willimon suggests that young pastors, as they are starting their ministry, should get to know the alcoholics in the congregation because it is the addict that understands the power of sin and the belief that only something much larger than themselves can save them. It is easy to think that what church is, is a gathering of good people. But it isn't. It's not to say that we don't do good things, but this isn't a gathering of people who have it all together. And if we do think that, we need to rethink what church means. Good and evil reside in the human heart. We may want to do good, but we still sin. It was as Alexander, the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, if it were only so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? All of us are on the outs with God. It doesn't matter if we're Woodrow Wilson. It doesn't matter if we were a general in the Confederacy. We are all, every one of us, on the outs with God. But that is why God is actively setting God's creation to right. It is why, through the cross, God invades this world to to free us from the powers of the sin and the devil. It is, in the end, God's grace that saves us. And that's the only thing that saves us. God knows who we are and loves us anyway. And I think that this has implications for the church we all love to say at some point that we are, everyone is welcomed. And Paul is trying to remind us that you're right, everyone is welcomed. And some of the people that we want, that are welcomed, we may not want to be in the church. The church has to be a place where we know that we are a gathering of sinners, that we are not perfect, and that we are loved by a God that went all the way to hell and back to save us and to show, and because of this, we show that grace to the, all the people around us in our acts of words and in our acts of actions. And I think that's why, especially now, this time, when we are the church apart, when we have to 
to have worship, it has to be in this way, is so important. Because right now, there are lots of people that are hurting for a lot of different reasons. They're all, like us, on the outs, and they need to know that God loves them, that God has brought them into God's kingdom. This is a time when it is a time for us to think of our own sin and complicity and ask for forgiveness, and then also know that forgiveness and live it out to others so that they may know the good news of Christ. This is not a time of vacation from church. It is a time to continue in mission and ministry because the world needs it now more than ever. The debates on names and statues reminds us that there really isn't anyone that's righteous. We are all imperfect. We all fall short. But in the cross, we are reminded that God comes to rectify all of creation and to bring salvation to all. We are not perfect, but thank God we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. So it's been over five months since we here at First Christian have started to do worship in this way, where we had to worship apart from each other. Uh, for me, and also for the rest of the staff here at First Christian, we also all of a sudden had to learn how to do everything online. Um, I am thankful I know a little bit of video editing, but I never really expected that I was going to be doing video editing. That wasn't something that was taught at seminary. I'm thankful for my journalism degree. What I'm learning over these last few months is how different things are when you're doing them this way. Putting a service on Facebook and YouTube is a whole lot different than preaching to a, a group in person. And this whole thing of worshiping apart has its challenges. I mean, how do you reach out to visitors? How do you reach out to members? How do you prepare and welcome visitors that you probably will never see and probably will never know? And then I kind of wonder, are all of you, especially the members of First Christian Church, worshiping online? And what does that mean? What does it mean to worship by yourself in front of a computer screen? And of course, I have to wonder, is anyone watching? Do people out there really care about any of this? Is all of this just a waste of time? Worshiping in this time, during a pandemic, is in some ways apocalyptic. Now, when I say apocalyptic, I'm not necessarily talking about the end of the world. Though, of course, the times that we live in and this entire year of 2020 feels like the end of the world. No, what I mean is it's actual meaning of that word in Greek. And what it means, apocalypse, is 
to reveal that this time that we're living in is apocalyptic and that it is revealing kind of what was in our hearts all along. I was talking to a, a fellow pastor who had, was just starting a new call as this lockdown began. And they found that there were people there that wanted to participate. And even though they could not worship in the building, they were ready to be a part of the church. And then there were others where maybe we don't know, but they just didn't connect. They didn't go online, they didn't do anything. They just kind of pulled back. And this is kind of happening in other congregations. There are some congregations that are finding that they're getting less people in worship online than when they met together. And there is some funny that when there is a push back among some people to, to get back to normal. They, they want to get back into the church. But the funny thing is, is that churches that have done that, especially when they've maybe had a, a special service and they do all of the practicing of, of social distancing and putting on masks, they don't get the same numbers that they did before the coronavirus outbreak. Some of this is due to the ongoing pandemic, but I think that some of it is also apocalyptic. It gave people, the coronavirus gave people the excuse that they needed to skip church more regularly. So we are in what they call a liminal time. It's a time between kind of two different periods. And you're left wondering, does worship even matter? And Paul, of course, has the answer. So we're continuing our journey in Romans, and we are now going to chapter 12. And from now on into the end of Romans, this focuses on how the church responds to God's grace. How do we experience this awesome love from God? And how do we live? So Paul starts out in chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in verse 1, there are two words that I want to focus on today. And that first word is the one I've already been talking about, worship. The church of that time, and actually I'm going to start first, before I do the worship part, I'm going to start with sacrifice. The church in Rome understood what sacrifice was all about. Especially if you were a Jew, you knew what sacrifice was because that's something that you did. You offered up an animal to God. But Paul was writing about a sacrifice. He was using the same word, but in some ways was meaning something different. 
Paul was talking about something very different from what people thought sacrifice was because sacrifice usually means that if you're giving something to God or whatever God you worship, that thing has to die. And with Paul, the sacrifice that he is talking about and that God wants is one that is alive. God here is not interested in a single sacrifice on an altar somewhere. What God is interested in is a sacrifice, meaning lives that are, seek to follow and live for God. God wants us to sacrifice our lives to live in the mold of Christ. So that's sacrifice. And then the other word is what we've been talking about and that is worship. And we think that we know what worship is all about, don't we? We think that it takes place in a sanctuary. We think that there are hymns and there's preaching and sometimes you have to dress up and sometimes you have to give an offering. That's what worship is, right? Of course, in the last five months where you know that worship is not that as much. It is some of it, but we're doing it very differently than we did if we were talking about this in February. Paul here is saying something different. He says that God is not simply interested in what takes place on Sunday alone. Now, notice that Paul didn't say that worship doesn't matter. Worship does matter. The things that we do in a church matter but it's not the only thing. And for Paul, worship is more expansive. When we sacrifice our bodies to live in the ways of Christ, that amounts to worship. So worship is not simply a place, a church, or a time when we have worship. It is also a way of life. What matters is what happens, not just what happens inside of a church on a Sunday or if that church is taking place on video, but it's also what happens when the last song is sung or when, this, or when the video ends. This is not something, what Paul was saying was not something that was new. The prophet Amos in the Old Testament spoke to the people of Israel about their own worship. Speaking, having God speak through Amos and God was not happy with the people of Israel. In chapter five, God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your festivals and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me with your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of, and the, of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melodies of your hearts. 
But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the time of Anus, the people went to worship, but the worship that happened was not pleasing to God. And the reason it was not pleasing to God is because the people were not living lives in the way of God, in the ways that God wanted. They treated the poor horribly. There were people who lived in, in luxury and didn't care about the poor that were in their midst. So God couldn't care less about their songs or their sacrifices if they weren't offering, if they weren't caring for their sister and, or brother who was in need. So worship matters. But worship isn't just something that happens on a Sunday morning. It happens all the time. So in a time that we are not worshiping, when we are worshiping not physically, when we're not in this church, we need to ask, how are we worshiping God during this time apart? Beyond just watching this church service on YouTube or Facebook on a Sunday morning. How do we worship God after this video ends? One example I can think of is that when we spent, we spent all of those months, three or four months collecting peanut butter and giving it to local food shelves to help people, especially now when the economy is not so good, have something of protein that they can give to themselves and their children. That is a form of worship. So the question here is, how can we, as a community of faith, continue to keep the worship going in this time apart? Because there are needs out there. And not simply just together, but that's important. But also, what are the needs in your neighborhoods where you live? How can you keep the worship going? Because even in this time of a pandemic, even in this time when we cannot come back into this building and come together and worship in person, we are still called to present our bodies as living sacrifices. None of this stops because of COVID-19. The worship continues. So it was a few years ago, I was at a funeral, actually of a church member, of, of a, the, the parent of a church member, and it was at a, a Lutheran church not too far from here. As the funeral finished up, as, and as, we were all as people were leaving, I got into my car and pulled out of the parking lot. And then I saw this sign, so I, and I literally had to stop and take a picture of it before I continued on. And what this sign said, and, and it was also interesting, because the sign was facing as if you, were, so that you could see it as you were heading out. And it simply said, you are entering the mission field. 
So when Sunday worship ends, when this worship ends today, when this video is done, or when we are back in this building and we are pulling out of the parking lot, the worship continues. And how do we do that? And how will we present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, both back when, both then in the future when we are in this building and now in this time worshiping apart? Because the worship continues. It doesn't stop, not even for a virus. Thanks be to God. Amen. We hope today's sermon podcast was nourishment to your soul. If you'd like to know more about First Christian Church of St. Paul, please visit our website at fccstpaul.org. That's F-C-C-S-A-I-N-T-P-A-U-L.org. May God be with you in the coming week.